Happy Friday Eve, y'all. We have a great show for you today. Hasan Minhaj is here, plus the stars of RuPaul's Drag Race, Binda LaCrim and Jinx Monsoon. So you stick right there, and we will see you on the timeline. Good morning, Twitter. I'm Zach Stafford, she's Alex Berg, and you are watching AM to DM. And another day, many great guests. So many people. I mean, drag racers are here. You know, I love me some they are drag indeed. race. Yeah. Vindela Krem and Jinx Monsoon are gonna be here with Sizzle G. It's gonna be fun to watch them at Kiki on the set. Yeah, I'm also talking to Hassan Minhaj, who, about his show, Patriot Act, and Elvis Duran, who is like a legendary radio host here in New York City. Our so, legendary all queer good fellow host. Yes, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's a tweet from Sam Stryker. Sharing a bed with your significant other is actually one of the worst parts of being in a relationship. They're snoring, it gets too hot, hogging the covers, touching each other in your sleep. Ooh, the list goes on. I would much prefer to sleep in separate beds and get a good night's sleep. Amen. I felt so sane while reading this tweet yesterday from Sam because, you know, every time I've ever shared a bed with anyone, I'm like, you know, we can do this like once a week because the rest of the week I need to actually be able to sleep because I cannot share a bed with anyone for the life of me. And it's mm. terrible, terrible. Okay, so I too previously was uh, team don't share a bed. <laughs> and then I fell in love. And, and then I fell in love. No, but uh, I think that it's all about your bed size. So oh. as someone who has shared, uh, gone from a full size to a queen size to a king size, I'm doing, I'm just fine in my king size bed. You know what, Twitter, let's just mark this day today, very important day, November 7th, in which Alex out-elited me in a statement. <laughs> she just said, the, the problem here is that you need a big bed. I'm proud of myself, actually. <laughs> I'm proud of myself for that. Well, you know, I love that you arrived to that because I was looking up some research this morning and you know, Sharing a bed does help with like anxiety and relaxing yeah. if you like the person. Um, it does help you learn how to sleep better once you get through it. So, you know, there yeah. are pluses to it. I'm just not there yet, Twitter. Well, this is the part where I tell you all way more information about me that you don't <laughs> want to know, which is that I would be considered the bed hogger. Oh. Which is probably also so you one take of up the a lot of space. I take up a lot That's of space. Why. I take all the covers. I am the culprit. <sighs> so um, you would actually have to talk to my spouse, who would have a very different answer, who gets annoyed with me. Call me. Let's over get that this. tea. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, that's the thing. I like sleep like this. I don't move, and it's people like that you so... who I don't enjoy. Are you sleeping a mummy? With. Like, why are <laughs> why you sleeping like that? <laughs> yes, I'm a pharaoh that has died, <laughs> but I'm now thriving in this bed by myself. Oh my gosh. Well, let's take it to the timeline, Twitter. Do you prefer to share a bed, or would you rather sleep alone? Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. Team sleep alone. Hashtag taking it. All right. Here's a tweet from Representative Adam Schiff. Next week, the House Intelligence Committee will hold its first open hearings as part of the impeachment inquiry. On Wednesday, November 13th, we will hear from William Taylor and George Kent. On Friday, November 15th, we will hear from Marie Yovanovitch. More to come. Joining us now to discuss impeaching Trump is BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. Good morning. Hi, good morning. I feel like I'm learning so much about you guys today. <laughs> I know. I, I'm, I'm a little bit sorry, sorry, but only just a little. Sharing is caring, Paul. Indeed. Well, <laughs> this, is, this isn't too close, is it? I'm not, I'm not crowding your space. I'm not making you uncomfortable right <laughs> oh now. Oh, my God. No, Paul, you can never You're crowd per, the perfect distance. <laughs> well, listen, impeachment appears to have arrived. So what can we expect uh, next week in the public hearings? Yeah, so this is where we break it all open. Uh, of course, Republicans have been alleging that this is a secret Soviet-style star chamber and illegitimate process, and so in part in response to that, and in part because it was always the plan, uh, Democrats are now going to be opening this up. We are going to have uh, people testifying publicly, and then eventually after that, the Democrats will have to decide whether or not to draw up articles of impeachment, which would then go to a formal vote on the floor of the House. 
Mm. So, Paul, what do what is the purpose of public hearings within the impeachment process itself? Well, you got to remember that this is not a trial in a strictly legal sense. A lot of people have been throwing around sort of you know certain rights to right to face your accuser and things like that uh, that are applicable to the judicial system. But this is inherently a political process. This is Congress has basically the ability to set its own rules for how it conducts an impeachment. Uh, inquiry and trial. And what that means is that it's all about validity. It's all about having the appearance of validity in the public's eye. And you essentially at a certain point have to present your evidence. And this is what the House Democrats are doing. They are they are going to be trying to lay out their case publicly so that it has the appearance of validity and they can win over a good section of the public because that's really what this is all about. So one of the things you mentioned is that uh, after these hearings, they'll draft the articles of impeachment themselves. Um, what does this process look like uh, just beyond these hearings? Okay, so the big question is what happens after the House votes to impeach President Trump, which looks highly likely right now. They have a lot of evidence. Uh, and beyond that, the Trump administration has been stonewalling the inquiry. So that also can lead to charges of obstruction of justice. So let's just assume that House Democrats do vote to impeach the president. Well, then it goes to the Senate. This is where the trial happens. And at that point, there's some details still to be decided. Uh, basically, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell have to get together and decide on some of the rules of like, all right, are we going to be able to call our own witnesses and you know things like that. And then for several weeks, we will have public hearings of public trial in the Senate, uh, six days a week. This is where really the rubber hits the road because for Trump to be impeached is one thing, for him to be removed from office, which is I think people conflate the two, but they're not the same, to be actually convicted and removed from office, that happens in the Senate. And that is much, much, much less likely because of course, Republicans control the Senate. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we here's a tweet from you, actually. Rand Paul is calling to subpoena the whistleblower. And I asked, what's the use since the complaint's now backed up by transcript and testimony? He said, I understood the whistleblower must be subpoenaed because he may have been involved in Burisma and corrupt Biden-Ukraine dealings. Please explain this conspiracy theory that Paul appears to be peddling. Okay, <laughs> I'll try. It gets very complicated very quickly, but the basic overview is this. Uh, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son. This part is this part is all legitimate. True. Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, was involved in a gas company, a Ukrainian gas company called Burisma Holdings, which was set up by a very you know, corrupt former Ukrainian government official. Uh, Hunter Biden was getting fifty thousand dollars to sit on the board, and pretty clearly, it was to lend the Biden name, the Biden credibility to this company that was trying to clean up its image and be seen as valid. So that's Hunter Biden. What the, where it gets into the conspiracy level is Republicans are trying to allege that there's some sort of scheme where Joe Biden, when he was vice president, was involved in sheltering his son and sheltering this company from prosecution. And I will spare you all of the details. We have written about it if people want to look on our website. But essentially, there are a lot of holes in that theory, a lot. And Republicans, however, are really running forward with this. What's weird about Rand Paul's statement is that he alleged or... or maybe not alleged, but hinted, floated the idea that the whistleblower, who we, again, we don't even know who this person is yet, was involved in Hunter Biden's business dealings or shady overseas deals with Burisma Holdings. And I, I asked him at one point, well, what, what evidence do you have of this? And he said, well, we won't know until we ask. That's why we need to speed up the whistleblower and ask it. So 
it's we're kind of really going down a, a path here that is uh, pretty out there. So why do you think uh, uh, that uh, Rand Paul has become Trump's biggest, uh, has quickly become part of Trump's attack as impeachment runs up? I got to say, it's surprising to me. Uh, you know, we have seen certain people step forward as Trump's main attack dogs, people like you know, Mark Meadows, Jim Jordan, Lindsey Graham. And it's not always the people that I would have thought. And Rand Paul is one of those people. Of course, he's from a very Republican state and he himself is very conservative, very libertarian. Uh, but truthfully, this has surprised me. I did not expect Rand Paul to be one of the most vociferous defenders of the president and one of the people trying to most you know, vocally to out the whistleblower. Mm. Well, Paul, here's a tweet from Politico. Jeff Sessions will run for his old Senate seat in Alabama, mounting a stunning comeback attempt a year after he resigned amid criticism and mockery from Trump. Here's another from Slate. Trump has joked if Sessions decides to run, he'd move to Alabama to run against him. So, Paul, um, Trump really, really doesn't want Sessions to run. Is that right? Yeah, it's uh, it's not what you want if you're, uh, if you're Jeff Sessions. Uh, I mean, you know, for him... He's, this is all about the primary race. Uh, Alabama is a pretty Republican state, but there are a bunch of candidates vying for this Republican nomination. And at a time where the president is being impeached, uh, you know that's going to be all about who's going to defend the president, who's going to go to Congress and stand up with him. That's a hard case to make when the president hates your guts. So that's going to be a bit of an issue for Jeff Sessions. Mm, and you know, Roy Moore is also running for this seat, and the seat is currently held by Doug Jones. How do you think this race is going to play out next year for all of these guys? It's really one of the more interesting races. I mean, Roy Moore famously won the nomination against the will of his party, uh, what was it, two years ago, I suppose, and then uh, lost the general election to Doug Jones, a Democrat. I mean, you know, Democrats tend to not win states like Alabama. I mean, it was one of the more shocking outcomes of that year. Doug Jones is also probably the single most vulnerable incumbent in the Senate right now. It's just a, it's just a heavily red state, and that's very difficult for a de Democrat to hold on to. So, yeah, I mean, we've got some really interesting mix of uh, factors here. Roy Moore trying to forge a comeback bid, which is going to make Republicans very nervous. Maybe it actually makes them say, look, Jeff Sessions, he held the seat for 20 years. Let's just, he, he, he would be easily the front runner and easily probably one of the most safe uh, candidates, if not for this whole Trump issue. Maybe that is enough for them to set aside their differences. And maybe uh, Jeff Sessions, you know, becomes a strong Trump supporter again and Trump, you know, backs off and maybe it goes that way. But really, we, we don't know. Maybe, maybe it goes the opposite. Trump holds onto this grudge, uh, campaigns against Jeff Sessions, and then, you know, sort of jokers walk. Well, uh, you know, the pettiness is really something to behold. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. All right, good talking with you. Uh, next level pettiness. Well, up, <laughs> up next, Alex is reading Fire Truth with legendary radio host Elvis Duran. Fire! Fire! Welcome back. I am joined by the legendary radio host Elvis Duran, who has a new book, Where Do I Begin? Stories. I sort of remember from a life lived out loud. The legendary okay. means you're dead, doesn't it? No, you could totally be a, a living I legend. I feel very alive. <laughs> By the well, way, welcome. in answer to your question earlier at the top of the show, yes. my problem sleeping with my significant other is getting kicked violently in the middle of the night. That is terrible, but I have to say, I'm probably the kicker you are. in my relationship. Well, yeah, good for you. Yeah, th thank you very much. You're the enemy. <laughs> so we're going to read some of these tweets. Um, I will do the first one, and then you just follow me. Okay. Okay. So if we could see the first tweet, uh, please. Great. Baby Cupid, you tweeted, horoscopes will say shit like, 
I predict you have two legs and y'all be like, WTF, that's me. It's like people can see themselves in any horoscope. Yes. Yeah. Are you a fan of horoscopes? No, you know, no. I'm not. If I, I, I always go down to mine, but if you read all the horoscopes, you realize they're all good. Yeah, yeah. You but, can like always find something positive about yourself. In them. Yeah. Yeah. And enough of that. We don't want more positivity. <laughs> you ready? Yeah. Bobby Bones. Is it my friend Bobby Bones? Yes, this is that Bobby Bones. Uh, he tweeted, just left my therapist's office. What I learned today, healthy long-term relationships are basically just best friends who you get occasionally naked with, in that order. Well, I happen to know Bobby, and this is why he can't keep a girlfriend. Oh, really? Bobby, stop it. Spend I, some time with someone. I love that you're just spilling the tea here on him right now. No, he's, he's, he's a tough cookie. All right, next tweet. Chrissy Teigen tweeted, my mom treats her AirPods like they're disposable. Buys a few a month. She says they would be easier to not lose if they had a cord. Well, let's talk about how unsanitary earbuds are. They, they are. I, we should throw them away after every use. Wouldn't that, it be nice to have enough money to do that? It, that's what I was gonna say, is that would be wealth if we could do that. But have you seen the stories here in New York City, people are dropping their, their, their AirPods, I mean, they're on the subway tracks and going down to pick them up as trains are approaching. I'm oh like, my God, fuck, man? That, is, that is messed up. I feel like there has to be some kind of, you know, there's like the five second rule for right. food. Yeah. There must be that for AirPods. They should be disposable. Okay, noted. Okay, so here's the treat of the day. We're gonna push the button at the same time and then you're gonna read it. Okay. Ready? Why do people have to declare when they are ready to unfriend someone? I hate this. If you're still seeing this message, you made the cut. <laughs> you know, obviously people are, they're, they're getting you to pay attention, so you'll ask them, oh, what's wrong? Why did someone upset you? I mean, why don't people just have conversations with friends rather than doing a mass, I'm going to unfriend the people I hate? I mean, this is true. Like, why even bother doing such a thing? Just it's, let people know. It's a cry for help. Yes, it's a cry for help. Well, listen, I feel like this is a little bit of wisdom that you've imparted to me, and folks can get a lot more from reading your book. Um, I want to read this tweet from Mary Farrell, who said, Hey, Elvis, just finished reading your book. I laughed, I cried, I loved it. I've marked my favorite chapters to read again and again. Thank you for your honesty, sharing your life experiences, and what you do every day. And I found it so interesting that you said that it was actually hard for you to speak candidly about yourself. Well, I'm an interviewer. Yeah. I interview people, I always have, for, I mean, for my entire career. So when it came time for me to be interviewed, I was just, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I find it very difficult to talk about myself. And through going around and talking about the book, now I'm, I'm getting better at it. Yeah. Like the other night I was on uh, The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, and every time I'm on with him, I tend to turn the interview around and I start asking him questions. And I, and I get off from the, that segment, and they're like, why do you do that? <laughs> Just let him ask the questions. I have to say, I was prepared for you to, to turn the table on me. Well, I was so I, I, I was, I'm, I'm ready, I'm ready for this. So. I could, well, yeah. you know, it has to be a natural conversation. Yes, indeed. Um, were there any moments that were difficult to rehash as you were writing this book, any stories? Yeah, there were. I mean, you know, it, it may be, I don't know, how old were, how old were you on 9-11, 2001? Oh, I must have been about uh, 15, 14 or 15. Okay, well, you were old enough to know what was going yeah. on mm -hmm. then. You know, reliving 9-11 and how we covered it as a morning show as a morning show family it's very difficult and I mm, mm -hmm. you know what I actually went back and even the happy moments in the book when I met my my current husband Alex and I, I got a little tear in my eye because those were great days mm, you know so mm -hmm. for sentimental reasons and also for sad reasons yeah it, it was very difficult to 
rehash all of that. I mean, it sounds like in some ways very lovely to get to now have a, like a record of all of those moments. And something that I was personally struck by in your career was when you came out um, publicly uh, mm -hmm. on air. And I know, I think at the time, um, or when you've talked about it, you said that you didn't want it to really focus the show on yeah. your identity. Yeah. I, I mean, have you been surprised with how it's played out in the years since? I'll, I'll be honest. I'm su I was surprised at how underwhelming it was when I started talking about my real life and me being a gay man was on the air. I, I thought, oh, they're gonna pick it. They're gonna pick it, they're gonna turn <laughs> us off. All the Christian values, family organizations are gonna turn that heathen off. It was like, oh, you're gay, great. And uh, that was that was a, a great eye-opening experience. Yeah, well, one of the things you also write about is how you were starstruck when you met uh, Howard Stern. Yeah. Yeah, is there anyone else that you've also, that that's made you feel like that? No. I mean, yeah. truly, Howard Stern is the only person I was nervous, nervous mm. to meet. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be at an event with him next week, and I'm, I'm already... Are you, look, you're, I'm still, you're still starting I'm to feel clammy. that way. Yeah. I have to say, I was, you know, as someone who uh, has conversations with people for a living, I was surprised to learn that you felt like um, your interviews with Madonna haven't been as successful they've as never, you wanted. They've never yeah. worked. Yeah. They, like, it was, it's like a cat-mouse thing. Every time I would interview Madonna... She would just give snarky answers, and mm. I mean, she wasn't mean. She just really didn't answer anything. And then we would go to a commercial break, and she would go, "That was great. How I'm like playful with you and everything." I'm like, no, <laughs> it's like, wait, it's not great to answer a question. It'd be great, but I, I want to redo with her. I want to, I want to get into a real Madonna interview one day before it's too late because we're all getting old. Yeah, well, I, you know what? I, I have you here, so I feel like I'd be remiss not to ask you about what you're listening to. So, what artists are you really excited about right now? You know, now? as we go into 2020, uh, Anthony Ramos. Oh, he was just here yesterday. Unbelievable, yeah. right? Yeah. The greatest guy with the greatest story. And another thing I've learned in this job is when you get the artist's stories, mm. you actually listen to their music differently. Anthony Ramos and his story, of course, we first saw him uh, on the stage in Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, now he's doing In the Heights, the movie. And mm -hmm. I mean, the, the guy has this album out. And I went to see his show last night. That's why I'm a little out of it today. <laughs> uh, he's unbelievable live. His music is... It's all original and it's all his story. It's great. So Anthony Ramos is fantastic. Uh, I don't know. Let's just leave it at him. All right, let's leave it with him. So at the end of this book, um, you write a letter to your younger self. Is that kind of weird? Is that I, I thought it was really, really sweet, actually. And, and I was going to ask you, what do you hope readers take away from it? You know what? Uh, and the whole book, actually, was an exercise in getting to know myself better. Mm, mm -hmm. And I really didn't know that would be the outcome until I wrote it. When you start to listen to your stories, because you are basically a person who's made up of all these great stories, when you relive your stories in your mind and in your memory, it sort of shapes it shapes uh, a, a thought in your mind of who you are and mm -hmm. why you are the way you are, the mm -hmm. good, the bad, and everything in between. And so that letter to myself at the end was, here's where you are in life now. You're mm -hmm. gonna get old and you're gonna be a out gay guy with a radio show that does very well and you're gonna be interviewed by interesting people about your book and you know, I, here I am. Mm -hmm. The great part about our life is, you know, we start at, at baby and we end up where you are today. Like, how'd you get here? How did you get up, he up here doing this? Look at where you are, you're in New York City yeah. doing this incredible show. Yeah. Have you ever thought about what got you here? I mean, I think for me, I am really, really driven by the idea of making a space where people can tell their stories and tell lots of different kinds of stories and, you know, where we can hear from people who usually we don't get to hear from in the media. So right. I think that is like the thread for me. That's why I'm here.
Well, what about your space to tell your story? I mean, do you journal? Do you write things down? I, I have journaled a lot in the past, actually. So I do write things down, and I, I definitely have spoken a lot about my own experience coming out, and I talk about my wife regularly on the show, so right. I definitely find that I, I carve out that space for myself. See, the issue, when you're my age, I'm 55 years old, when you get to my age and you start trying to tell your story, you've forgotten a lot. <laughs> I mean, the 80s were a rough time. I, I, I can imagine, and yes, yes. <laughs> I'm surprised I have a septum and a brain cell. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, so luckily, I was. I'm still surrounded by people who knew me then, and I would interview them about things we did. Yeah. And, oh, that's right, we did do those fun things. It's great to examine your life and try to figure out why you are who you are. And I think writing a book is the extreme way of doing it, but just you know, jotting down yeah. memories and reading them out loud to yourself is just a great exercise. Yeah. It sounds kind of creepy to some people, but it's, it's great. Well, maybe I'll have to go back and pick up a journal. So You this should. Was, this was such a great note to end this segment on. And I love Thank the you book. for joining me. I love the book is all written. I know, I, but look, isn't that a good sign? The dog well, is. Well-worn, exactly. Yeah, right. Well, Ellis Durand's Where Do I Begin? Stories I Sort of Remember from a Life Lived Out Loud is available now. Later, I'm sitting down with comedian Hassan Minhaj, but up next, more AM to DM. Here's a tweet from Char Jossel. Rapper and actor T.I. said in a podcast interview that aired Tuesday that he goes with his 18-year-old daughter to the gynecologist every year to, quote, check her hymen and make sure that it's, quote, still intact. Oof. Here's a tweet from Cameron Glover. A reminder on the necessity of sex educators. T.I. demanding proof of her virginity by forcing hymen checks is misogynistic garbage and a reflection of exactly what so many folks think about sexual liberation and freedom. Cameron is a sex educator and the host of the Sex Ed in Color podcast. She joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I mean, there are so many layers uh, that are so disturbing uh, to these quotes from T.I. Um, so what was mm -hmm. your reaction when you saw them? Um, so honestly, I wasn't surprised. Um, what T.I. expressed may have been extreme for a lot of people, but we live in a very misogynistic, patriotic um, world. So it didn't surprise me that this was something that was still going on in 2019. Um, and this is, in fact, what a lot of people think about sexual autonomy and liberation. So, mm. And how are these remarks actually inaccurate at the basis of science? So <laughs> when you actually look at what the hymen is, the hymen is actually just a very fragile piece of tissue in the body. And because culturally and as a society, we subscribe meaning behind it, we create this narrative that the hymen is more than a piece of flesh. It dictates a person's worth and value in the world. And we put that on that pedestal. So by T.I. saying that he is forcing his 18-year-old child to go through these um, virginity checks, um, what he's saying is that her worth and her value is subscribed only to her staying pure, right? Her subscribing to this narrative of staying a virgin until he deems it appropriate um, for her to be sexually active. And that takes away her autonomy as a person, her right to say when she wants to be sexually liberated, and her right to have a healthy sex life. Mm. One of the things that I, I have to say I was heartened by was Twitter's collective reaction yes. of like, this mm -hmm. is really, really disgusting. But we also know that there are people who share these ideas. So how can we use sex ed to combat these notions around purity uh, and virginity? 
Yeah. So sex ed is really important because it not only gives people the tools and the information that they need to learn about their bodies and what's going on, but also to make informed decisions about what's right for them. Um, I always like to say when I give workshops that there is no one way um, to, you know, have a perfect sex life. It looks different for every single person, but as a sex educator, my role is to give everyone the tools to make the best decision for them. Mm. And to what extent are these ideas still being per- are still pervasive among doctors and medical providers? Yeah, so doctors and medical professionals actually don't get a lot, if any, um, ex- extensive training within sex education when they're going undergoing medical practices. I want to say at last check, it was between eight to 12 hours total when they're getting their medical licenses. So it's really important for medical professionals to not only go out of their way to be um, competent in sex education, but to partner with other sexuality professionals like sex educators to give um, professional development courses at the place of employment, at places where they're working so that we can create this network of support for um, patients and doctors and medical professionals and not have the onus put on just one person being um, all-knowing about every single subject. Mm. Well, Cameron, I'm so glad that you were able to join us to uh, add a lot of necessary value to this conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Let's take it to the timeline. What do you think of TI's comments? Tweet us using the hashtag AMTDM. More AMTDM is up next, so stay tuned. I'm joined now by comedian Hassan Minhaj. You know him from The Daily Show and his stand-up special, Homecoming King. And he's the host of Patriarch with Hassan Minhaj on Netflix. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. And I just want to jump in and start talking about Patriot Act. Yeah. Um, so far, you've tackled topics like student loan debt, Saudi Arabia, police unions. What are you excited to delve into this new season? Yeah, um, I love talking about, you know, big topics that start a conversation. Um, and we're going to be opening this new season with uh, a big uh, a big dissection and conversation on mental health. And I'm really excited Oh, very that. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, does that come, I know that you've talked a little bit before about how some stories come from your own kind of personal experience. Some come from, uh, you know, big topics in the news. Was this one generated by a personal experience with it? or Yeah. It, it, you know, it's sort of a combination of two things. I think it's yeah. something that affects our generation a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, you know, depression rates are up suicide rates are up. This is a thing where there's been a huge stigma around the topic. Mm-hmm. Um, but we wanted to sit on this one. I wanted to talk about my own personal mm-hmm. experiences with mental health, anxiety, panic attacks, stuff like that, yeah. while also talking about the legislative and political mechanisms that are sort of preventing people from sometimes getting the care that they need. Ooh, panic attacks are real. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. like, I have been there. Yeah. I know that's like, but it's, it, to me, it's and, like, it's and, wild. People don't want to talk about it. Totally. It's hard to talk about, yeah. And, you at the time, you know, sometimes I would experience it right before a show, during a show, and I was like, "Oh, this is normal. Yeah, this is how I, I know I'm alive. This is a good thing because it it's one of those things. Again, people aren't talking about it, and we also finally have this point where people can classify it as a mm, thing. Mm-hmm. You know how it used to be, you would just call someone crazy. Yeah, and absolutely. now you can say, "No, that person has." bipolar disorder, that person has schizophrenia. We have now been able to classify these things and have a real sort of scientific conversation around the symptoms and the treatment. Yeah, or it's nice just because when you talk about it, then you realize you're like, I am not the only person who is is going through this. How do you you decide which topics to cover? Um, For me, there's one of two buckets. You know, when we work with the writers and the news team, uh, 
I like to think about stories in two different ways. Things that you do care about and things that you should care about. Mm -hmm. Things that you do care about are things that affect your day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. Like the way we were so quickly able to talk about mental health, that's a great thing that, Mm. hey, everybody can kind of relate to that at some level. Things that you should care about are things that sometimes feel maybe international or esoteric, Mm -hmm. like uh, Sudan or uh, Brazil, Amazon, and the rainforest. Mm -hmm. You know, it kind of feels far away being here in the States, but, you know, we're an international show on an international platform. And people around the world are now, you know, consuming content. Yeah. Um, so I love that that sort of osmosis of ideas and stories. Yeah, well, yeah. thinking about uh, international stories, um, I mean, you don't even shy away from stories that personally imperil you. Um, for instance, you made headlines uh, with the Saudi Arabia episode. Yeah. Um, were you surprised by the reaction to it? How do you feel about it? I, you know, for me, one of the things that, uh, you know, we're, we're personally very proud of at the show is, is artistically pushing it to those limits. These are opinions mm. and takes that, we saw that were in the news, and it's something that I've been, you know, really passionate about that I wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. So I was like, let's go for it. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of another conversation that you definitely went for was your uh, interview with Justin Trudeau. Right. And you actually spoke with him before uh, the various scandals about him doing both brown and blackface. Oh, right, right. Um, and after this, you tweeted, uh, I have a few more questions. Um, so right. how, how, if you, you know, say the timing were different, you asking, had you, yes, had, you know, would that have impacted whether or not you would have done had, the interview? What would you have asked him about it? Had I known before the interview, now obviously the, the blackface and brownface hadn't come out yet, yeah. but had I known, I would have showed up to the interview in whiteface. <laughs> and I'm like, JP, I came as you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Halloween came early just for the interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But are there questions that you would have asked him about it? Yeah, I mean, what are they? What have you thought about? <laughs> well, dude, when you did the Arabian Nights, he was really shiny. I would have asked him, how much oh, polish do God. you own? I mean, it was a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot. It, it was a lot, yeah. yeah. Well, um, one of the things that was interesting about that episode is that uh, I also uh, I read about this debate over what to do with imperfect progressives. Right. So what's, what was really interesting is, you know, one of the things that we, we analyzed in that episode is, obviously, Justin Trudeau, uh, you know, is this public figure that was adored by the world mm-hmm. and, and still is adored by, you know, people around the world. Um, however, you know, political pragmatism at times is going to come head to head. It quite frankly will come head to head with climate change. Mm-hmm. He can't negotiate with that. Mm-hmm. And there's certain policies that he had put in place that really aren't going to meet the Paris Climate Accord, mm-hmm. you know, agreements mm-hmm. that they had sort of led with. What do we do with that? And mm-hmm. that, that conversation to me is really interesting. You have these big promises. They're not adding up to what mm-hmm. you know you thought or what we thought they could be. Mm-hmm. We have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that conversation's really, really important. Mm. I think one other, this reminds me of a conversation happening too around cancel culture. When you yeah. think of an imperfect progressive, it's like, what do you do with someone who you know, has, has these belief systems or has even done things in their past? Like, do we dispose of them Right. You know, uh, is there a path for restorative justice? Like, have you been thinking about all of those? Totally. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, with me with cancel culture, one of the biggest things is that uh, the mediums by which we're having these conversations aren't great for nuance. Mm. Wait, you mean to tell me Twitter is yeah, not the yeah, place I know, we should be doing right. this? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Or even like this segment, if we're going to have a whole thing on it, reducing it down to eight minutes, it's not yeah. the best place to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, of course. So to me, it's a little disingenuous because if you were to have those conversations with friends or family members, you would actually have the runway room to have mm-hmm. nuance and some form of restorative justice too, of like, mm-hmm. hey, I made a mistake or I wronged you. Let's have this conversation and see, okay, can we fix that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 
having it via Twitter or arguments online, I don't think that's the right place to have real sort of human conversation and dialogue. Yeah. Or sometimes I think it negates the idea that you have to have several conversations. Like you can't just tweet at a person one time and you know expect that to do all the work. Yeah, so, totally. Like yeah. to me, one of the things that I found like the the funniest is when people sort of tweet at you and they go, "Do better," <laughs> which to me is like the laziest thing you do. Like you just cast your stone and you're like, "You do better." As for me, my job They're is like, to tell you to. I do am better. an activist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Please do yeah, better. Do better, which yeah. is like the late, like it is the laziest form of. So funny. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. no personal self reflection in that, and and to me, that's that I think is th- that human aspect and of nuance and conversation yeah. is missing from the dialogue. Yeah. yeah. Well, outside of your show, um, last month you actually testified before Congress about the uh, student loan crisis. Yes. Um, what made you want to go to Congress about that issue in particular? Well, for me. Again, student loans is an issue that I think really affects our generation. We have been saddled with this burden. We were told going to high school, you have to go to college. There is no other alternative. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we bought into this. Mm -hmm. And now our entire generation is saddled with Mm -hmm. trillions of dollars of debt, Mm -hmm. which is insane. And um, I actually really do believe, A, it's a bipartisan issue. And two, and B, it's a a winnable issue. I Mm -hmm. I think, you know, student borrowers can and should get basic protections. Mm-hmm. Because again, these we're people that are actively trying to do the right thing, pay back our student loans. We shouldn't be treated like, you know, we're gambling addicts. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's wild that we even have to be like, we believe we should be treated fairly and not totally. completely exploited because we try to advance ourselves or our lives. Yeah, you know, totally. Or just yeah. something as simple as like, you should give me the proper information that, oh, I should do an income-based repayment plan instead of deferring my payments. Mm-hmm. Like, this is stuff, by the way, I'm also mad at college. Like, from a very basic level, we should learn that stuff in college. Yeah, a practical skill that we will have I, to do. I, I'm yeah. just pitching a class. We should have a class just called, what's the difference between a W-2 and a W-9? <laughs> I still probably I don't still know. couldn't tell you what it is. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, give me a practical life skill. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I wish that we had more time to talk about all these things, Austin. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. New episodes of Patriot Act start this Sunday on Netflix. Up next, the stars of the Broadway show, The Inheritance, sit down with Zach. The New York Times called The Inheritance an open-hearted theatrical epic. The Guardian said a roller coaster epic, and the Times wrote that the show is an epic tale of love, betrayal, and tragedy. For me, it was simply epic, and I'm excited to have the star, John Benjamin Hickey, and the playwright, Matthew Lopez, joining me now. Good morning. Good morning. morning. Thank you for breaking your bed, your sleep cycle. Yeah, usually you have, you know, usually Broadway actors are asleep at this time, but especially your show, both your shows, because it's so, so long, and we're going to get to that fact of it. Uh, But this show arrives from London, from sold-out crowds over there. It's now here on Broadway. How does that feel to see it cross over the pond? Uh, you know, I, it was always written for, for a New York audience. It was written for an American audience. And the decision to start it in London, which was a good strategic one, uh, did make it feel a little disconnected from its home. So it was really good. It's been so good to it, just bring it home. It's a play about New York yes. City and yeah. about New Yorkers and real estate in New York and restaurants in New York and heartbreak mm-hmm. and humor in New York. So to have it home, it like lands in a way that like is... Like volcanic. It's yeah, great. you said that it was kind of a gift for you when it came across your desk. Why was that? Yeah, um, I've been around for a while and <laughs> I've done a lot of plays, and uh, I love doing new plays more than anything else I, I've ever done in my career. And I have never read a new play that was filled with equal amounts of heartbreak 
mm. and pain and humor. Matthew writes comedy like nobody since like Terrence McNally, mm -hmm. some of the great writers I've worked with. And I love to circle the jokes, man. Yeah. I love, <laughs> I love, I love doing comedies. And this is a profoundly mm -hmm. deep comedy drama. And uh, so it was just like, I thought I was like, oh, I don't want to do plays anymore. Yeah. I just want to, you know, go do television yeah. and make money. I read this thing and I was like, oh, I'll go anywhere to yeah. do this. And I did. And you do such a good job on stage. And you know, uh, the, the play has levels. And I think that's why so many gay men are loving it. Because it gives you laughs, it makes you cry, it makes you feel a lot of feelings. But Matthew, how do you describe the play that you adapted from a book when you explain it to people on the street? Well, when I was a teenager, I saw the movie of Howard's End mm -hmm. and I fell madly in love with it. And then I fell madly in love with the book, and it's always stayed with me. And when I was in my early 30s, I was rereading the book, and um, you know, I was older and I had more experiences, and I realized the thing that drew me to it was my relationship to Ian Forster, the, the author, and, and that he was a gay man who lived his entire life in the closet. And I wanted to take that book that I love so much and write it in a way that he might have if he had been able to tell the truth about himself. So that was really the genesis of the project, was mm -hmm. to tell that story in a queer way. And that's such an important note about this play because it's so contemporary and it's telling us a story about people like us living today right now. Why is it important for young people to see themselves represented in the AIDS epidemic today? I think that, you know, for my generation, I grew up not old enough to be affected by it, but witnessing it as children. And then I, you know, working on the show with some of the younger guys in the cast, they were not alive, they have no, tangible experience with it. And I think that it, it's easy to sometimes feel like that's that's over and done with and that 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 is not a part of my history. And and you know, um Edmund White met with us recently and he said that, you know, being gay is like the only minority group where your parents are not a member of the same minority that you are. Mm, wow. And uh, it's very easy to to think that the the epidemic doesn't affect you and no. it actually is a part of our history. And especially this morning when we really and there was news that, that there's a new strain of yeah. HIV that has just been discovered. Yeah. This thing doesn't go away, and it's yeah. a part of our history, and we need to talk about our history and where we fit in that continuum. Amen. And John, you've been telling stories about that history for a bit. In 2011, you got a Tony for your work in The Normal Heart. Right. Why do you think it's so important for folks like you to tell these stories on stages and on the screen? Um, for our community, it's very important for gay men. But I also think that this play is so important right now uh, for everyone, gay, straight, because it's about community, this play. It's about bridging the gap between this very, very turbulent present mm -hmm. and to the past, which had enormous turbulence as well, calamity with uh, my character's generation and the AIDS crisis, and building, building community that supports and looks after each other. So it's like the world that we live in right now, there's such terrific... Uh, lessons to be taken from this play. And as a gay man who is an, also an actor who's done plays with these kinds of themes, this theme seems to be like global <laughs> as much as it yeah. is specific. Yeah. yeah. And you know, you're, you, you're, your response reminds me of a fact, you know, that Greg Louganis came out as HIV positive over 25 years ago. Jonathan Van Ness just came out as HIV positive the other day. It still feels like it's such a big deal to tell that truth about yourself. Why do you think that is, even though you guys have been creating work talking about HIV for so long? 
I think there's a twofold thing. I think, first of all, the, the further we get away from, from the epidemic years, the, the, the less we actually talk about people who are in our community who still are HIV positive, mm -hmm. who still live with the reality of it every day. I'm grateful that the, that the medication is there to, to prolong life and to make it a, a manageable uh, illness, mm -hmm. uh, a chronic uh, manageable uh, part of their lives. But it's also, you know, we, we don't talk about the fact that in, in certain communities in this nation, um, the epidemic never ended. Yeah. You know, if you're if you're a black man who has sex with other men, the epidemic is still going on. Poverty is a big uh, indicator of whether or not you'll become HIV positive in your life. And so I think that we still have to talk. I think it's important that people come out uh, about their status if they if they if they feel like they they want to, because we can't ever believe that this thing is gone. And, mm -hmm. and to do so is very dangerous. Yes. Ooh. Amen. You're over taking me to church. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I have a tweet here from fellow Broadway actor Julia Murney. Uh, she writes tonight during current call at part one of The Inheritance, which is three plus hours long. The man next to me asked enthusiastically, when are you seeing part two? To which I enthusiastically said, I would see it right now. Do yourself a favor and get to the Barrymore Theater. And I will echo her. I got when it the current close. I was like, we can go again, girl. We can do this right. right <laughs> And now. I love Julia Murney. She's a phenomenal actress. <laughs> Thank you, Julia. See, getting out praise. But you know, the, the play is so long. How are y'all holding up with so, such long hours on stage so many times a week? Uh, it, what's interesting about the, the length of the play is it feels like we all feel like we got to star in a the greatest Netflix t television <laughs> show and everybody got to binge watch it and binge be in it together. Weirdly enough, the length of the play is 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 not an issue because it it it's like a you've seen it it's like mm -hmm. a a freight train or a, a speed train a, a bullet what do they call those the acela yes. it's like the acela of Broadway <laughs> it just takes you to your destination in a way that feels like wow that feels like it was twenty minutes long and I've had several people say when part one's over. I don't want the dinner break. No. I just want it to keep going. So weirdly enough, the thing that exhausts you is also the thing that gives you an enormous amount of energy. It's why we mm -hmm. stay up so late and sleep so mm -hmm. late. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that makes sense. I'm glad that y'all are at least sleeping because I worried for all of you. I don't even know you. And I was like, girls, y'all need to go to bed. Yeah, this is a we, lot. We sleep a lot. Oh, okay. Well, before I let you go, John, your next project on Broadway is with two famous people, Sarah Jessica Parker, Matthew Broderick, husband and wife. What can you tell us about Plaza Suite? Plaza Suite is a play by Neil Simon, who was one of the great playwrights of the 20th century. Uh, hilariously funny, a play about marriage, about relationships ending, beginning, um, all the humor and heartbreak in that. And it's, you know, being performed by two people who know a thing or two about being married to each other. Mm -hmm. It should be a lot of fun. And what's it like working with such a famous couple? Uh, well, we'll see, because I've never worked with them. So I hope the friendship stays intact, and I hope the marriage stays intact. <laughs> Stay tuned. I will light a candle for you, because <laughs> exactly. I'm sure they're not ones to mess with yeah. on stage. They're coming to our opening of The Inheritance. They're, oh, good. Sarah's already seen it. She's in, like, in London, yeah, right? And, yeah, and, and can't wait. Like, canceled everything on that Sunday. She's like, I, I, I got to do the whole thing. I, I love that, and I have to tell Twitter, Sarah Jessica Parker is an ally down. Oh, <laughs> she well, is yeah. so great yeah. for our community. Well, thank you so much for being here today, and congratulations on such a wonderful, wonderful show. Thank you. Well, be sure to catch The Inheritance on Broadway. It's an unforgettable and powerful theater experience, so check it out. Thank you both for being here.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm an investigative journalist who puts the ho, ho, ho and host, Syzygy. And today I am here with RuPaul's Drag Race alumni and Yuletide Queens, Jinx Monsoon and Ben De La Creme. <laughs> Hello. So your new tour, All I Want for Christmas' Attention, is coming out soon. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> We're, thank you so much. <laughs> We're so excited to be ringing in the holiday with you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> this is a, I mean, it gets earlier and earlier every year, right? It does. <laughs> Halloween's over, so it's Christmas. It's the moment, you saw the Mariah meme, the moment that October 31st is done, mm -hmm. bam, Christmas. Yeah. Now, I want to ask, first and foremost, what can people expect from All I Want for Christmas's attention? What can't they expect? <laughs> oh my goodness. I'd say it's like, um, an esoteric, um, masturbatory, um, political rant um, that doesn't take itself too serious. <laughs> I'd say it's just a desperate uh, clamor to maintain the success of last year's production. Yeah. Um, which was last year we did a show Ooh. called To Jesus, Thanks, Thanks for, for Everything, everything. Dayla and Jinx. Jinx and Dayla. And um, it was a huge success. Mm -hmm. And so we figured why not just capitalize off of that? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, but it's actually, I mean, we do a live singing. It's a lot of comedy, storytelling, uh, puppetry, yes. glamour, Burlesque, spectacle. Stripping. Oh, because basically um, everything I do yeah. here. Yeah. Yes, in exactly. In a environment. Oh, yeah. I love that. Everything we're going to do here in the next eight minutes. <laughs> so, well, I will say, though, that historically, you two have had somewhat different performing styles. But what is the working relationship like? Oh, um, actually, it's funny because we are such different stage personas. Mm. But I feel like as... Um, creators, as theatricians, um, we are very, very similar. We're both perfectionists. We're both very anal. Um, <laughs> Jinx is especially anal. <laughs> very anal this morning. <laughs> well, I did start seeing someone recently. Anyway, um, and so we actually, I think we work together really well as co-creators. And then we found a way to marry our two mm. styles because I would say that... Um, my style is there is no fourth wall, mm. and Dela's style is that she's bashing her head constantly against mm. the fourth wall. So yeah, no, I mean I think it's very method. Like yes, <laughs> um, yeah, but we complement each other very well on mm. stage because I love the holidays. I'm mm -hmm. super optimistic. I really love all of the fun and the festivity and Jinx hates it, so we really play off each other well. I'm just a jaded, bitter, old um, fill-in-the-blank. <laughs> I will say, though, that you're not just performing. You're also writing, directing, producing, to quote another famous queen, your teachers, leaders, mentors. So how do you balance putting in all of those different elements into the show? Drugs. No. Uh <laughs> There's no balance. We're going to crash hard in January. Um, no, I think it's just um, what we do to prepare for the show is we essentially lock ourselves in a room together for like 12 to 16 hours every day for two weeks. And then in the end, we are neurotic messes, but the show's great. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's also just Jinx and I have been working together for over a decade at this point. Oh my mm. gosh, thank you. See the sisterly love? <laughs> it's, it's the little moments like that. No one will do that for me. I'm all alone. I'm here. sure Jinx will start picking at you at any moment. Yeah, great, oh, thank um, you. I have a brush, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, we've been working together for so long, and we've both been at this for so long that I think we're pretty used to burning the candle at um, all four ends mm. at this point. 
I get it. I want to switch gears a little bit. So recently, an edition of Drag Race Celebrity was announced. Uh-huh. If you had to pick a celebrity to be on the show to snatch the crown, who would it be? Oh, Mike Pence. He needs it so bad, doesn't he? I just feel like that would really turn this country around if somebody would just give that poor man a dress. Um... I'd love to make over Macaulay Culkin, but just because mm. I'd want that intimate time with him. I she wants like to teach you an attack. <laughs> I feel like he'd be a little bit of a monster to take it back to oh, the movie. I didn't even think of that Harvey when monster. I said that answer, but I feel like... He was in soft drag. Yeah, so he'd yeah. be a ringer, actually. So now I change my answer to Steve-O. I want to do Steve-O. <laughs> <laughs> you know, get him out of the house at this point. <laughs> Is that relatable, America's Youth? <laughs> Guys, remember that? You still, you still watch Steve-O, As it ripped from today's headlines. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about some more headlines. So I have a question from one of the few heterosexuals here at BuzzFeed, <gasps> who is, his name is Hayes Brown. He's a dear friend, and he's the host of the new podcast, Impeachment Today. He asks, drag queens are often cited as the future liberals want, but what do drag queens want? What do drag queens want? J- well, Jinx wants to tuck Macaulay Culkin. Um, <laughs> girl, get in line at this point. Um, I just want um, freedom, equality, I guess. I mean... The- Maybe the world to realize that it's never worked out particularly well when you resist change and yeah. uh, more rights mm. for other people. And why hasn't history helped us work that out yet? That when you say, aren't they asking for too much? It's... um. Probably not in your best interest. Yeah, to, to, you know, like criticize asking for everyone to be treated fairly and equally. Mm. I mean, that's what really confuses me so much when they're like, this is the future liberals want. Mm. A future where everyone's respected and allowed to be who they are and mm. allowed to live their truth without question. So I don't see what's the problem there. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, admittedly, I do look forward to both of you being president and vice president. Thank and you. And I do have And a then way. we'll switch. Four years later, we'll switch. <laughs> well, I actually have a way to find out who's going to go first. Oh. Uh-huh. We're going to play a little bit of a game. Great. So it's going to be Christmas trivia. The moment you know the answer, shout it out. <laughs> I will keep track. And the winner is going to get 10 seconds of Twitter's undivided attention. Oh. Oh, thank goodness. If <laughs> what there's, does that even mean? If there's anything that a drag queen really loves, it's for Twitter, Twitter attention. <laughs> okay, so our first question. What year was Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas Is You released? I'm going to just take a stab and say 1999. What? No? I'm going to say 83. Okay, well, you're both wrong. Okay. Um, <laughs> It was 1994. Really? Yeah. I wouldn't know. I wasn't even born then. Yeah, me neither. I'm like 45. So, okay. <laughs> so, next question. True or false? Jingle Bells was not originally meant to be a Christmas song. True. Correct. Ah, ah, yes. Okay, what was so, it meant to be? Oh, um, a song know, about a, a meditation. <laughs> a sleigh. Product placement for the new sleigh. <laughs> So our next question. <laughs> the original Hunchback from Notre Dame musical. <laughs> so as of 2018, what Christmas song was the highest selling of all time? 2018? Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Well, I would go with All I Want for Christmas is You, honestly. Well, I don't know. I mean, that ignores all of history before 1994. Oh. That was a buzzer and a bell. Oh, my God. We reached a singularity. <laughs> wow. This is so exciting. But it was wrong. Oh, oh um, is it um, that one where it's like, uh, 
No, mm. I can't remember. Oh, and, no, I know that one. I know what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You were thinking of White uh, Christmas by Bing Crosby, yeah! right? Yeah! That one, correct, again, James. <laughs> okay, next question. What is the official title of the Nat King Cole song that begins with the iconic line, chestnuts roasting on an open fire? Mm. Merry Christmas to you. <laughs> <laughs> Chestnuts are being hunted over fire with Jack Cross nibbling at your nose. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Close, close. Okay, it's actually called. All I want for Christmas is you. No. All roads lead back to Mariah Carey. It's actually called the Christmas song. Well, not anticlimactic. I don't seem right. I don't feel like one person can just claim that for themselves. I mean, when you're Nat King Cole and your daughter's Natalie, you can claim whatever you want at this point. <laughs> but I, I, so I have one more question. Okay. Okay. I feel like you're gonna win because you have two, but I feel like this is anybody's game. You have a shot. Look, um, when did Christmas officially become a federal holiday? It's a multiple choice. So A, 1901, B, 1870, or C, 1776. <laughs> what was the first option? 1901. I'm gonna federal go with 1870. <gasps> Oh my God, you're right. I am president of the United States of America. <laughs> well, I think honestly, even with actually, all those wrong answers, both of us are very qualified. <gasps> I would, I for one would love a double winner, but we do have to pick one winner. A double-headed president. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna have to say, ladies and gentlemen, Jinx Monsoon. I'm the orange-haired president you, our country needs. <laughs> oh my no, so here's what you do. We are going to give you 10 seconds of your undivided, of America's and Twitter's undivided attention right to this ah, camera. camera. Um, ben, could you please just turn around and shame? I'll just lay on the floor. Great. <laughs> Jinx, your time uh -huh. starts now. Oh, what? What? What do I do? You just feel it. Um, it. Okay. Um, I want to be a cartoon voice actor. So make that happen. Um, let's make sure. <laughs> Well, you've spoken I into reality. The country. You're going to be the first drag president and a voice actor for cartoons. We're in good hands, America. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I have so many good things to say, but anyway, you I didn't give me enough time, it. so I guess I can't fix everything today. No, thanks, Andela. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. So, ladies and gentlemen, you can see Jinx and Dela on their All I Want for Christmas is Attention Tour starting November 29th. Up next, more into DM. Welcome back. It's time for Add Us. And I just have to say, the future I want as a liberal is drag queens hosting morning television. I'm with it. Yes. Yeah. Hello, I'm right here. <laughs> Sissy G is just standing right at our desk. Sissy G is going to take our jobs. Tomorrow, you know, AMTD, hosted by Sissy G and Vanilla Cribs. Was, you know, to give us yeah, a day yeah, off, y'all. Give us a day off, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we asked, do you like sharing a bed with someone or separate at the top of the show? And DJ Bellerman tweeted, my wife and I each have our own comforter, and I will never go back. You know, I'm thinking that this is wow. what I might need to try. Really so, two comforters? Yeah, like two yeah. down comforters? Like big comforters? Maybe, I don't know. That's or, just excess. That is also wealth. Comforters are expensive. Wow, this is what it feels like to talk about people's wealth. <gasps> I, I like I this. I know, look at, you do. I'm taking off my, tables have turned. my, my crown. Okay, you will wear good. it now. Daniel Summers, well, Daniel Summers tweeted, it took me, it took some getting used to, but now I sleep much better if he's there. And I have to say that uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I, it took me some getting used to, but it is really nice having someone there, you, like, especially if you're creeped out at nighttime. Yeah, you know? so, like, when when you're both, like, on trips or something, you're, like, do you find yeah. yourself reaching for Lisa? Like, I would say I reach Lisa. for her. Well, you missed kicking her, I guess. So. <laughs> wow, That's like, I an attack. Alex misses Lisa, so she needs to get some anger out. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Oh, my gosh, that's why I play roller derby. <gasps> wow. So that I don't take anything out on anything. I love that today's uh, episode of AM to DM has been a real deep dive into the psychological state of Alex Berg. It's called Restless Leg Syndrome, okay? <laughs> All right, well, we asked, what do you think about T.I.'s comments? And Jeff tweeted, no, no, no. To which yeah. I say, yes, that is correct. Yes, you are no, very... No, absolutely not. Oof. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you to our guests, Paul McLeod, Cameron Glover, John Benjamin Hickey, Matthew Lopez, Jinx Monsoon, Ben De La Creme, Elvis Duran, and Hassan Minaj. Oh, my gosh. We will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day, Twitter.